Hi there! Welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host Jen Kim, and today we'll talk about why the sky is blue, rather than a no-nonsense color like tan. This episode is brought to you by the color, that's right, green! Wait, what? Don't worry, more on the relationship between blue and green later in the episode. Alright, let's get started. Ah, don't you love the feeling of going for a walk in the fresh spring air, looking up and being greeted by a brilliant blue sky dotted with what I can only describe as fluffy pixel clouds? Living in New Zealand, we're blessed to have particularly beautiful deep blue skies. I often wonder when I look up at a blue sky, man, how cool is it that the sky is blue? I mean, think about it. If the sky was a different shade, say red, green, or as Captain Raymond Holt would want it, tan, would we consider the sky as beautiful? Would Martians in the future remark how beautiful their rusty, yellow-red sky is? We use blue as a calming, soft color, and clear blue skies are often a symbol of light and hope and freedom and all that is good in the world. Compare that to apocalyptic movies where the sky is a drab, featureless grey. So that begs the question, why is the sky blue on Earth? Lucky for you, today's episode is all about the colour blue, how it's made both naturally and artificially, while learning about some fun history, neuroscience, and linguistic facts about blue. But first off, let's explain to you why the sky is blue as if you're a child. If you're a cool science nerd like me, you've probably played around with a prism at some point. No? Well, you've seen a rainbow, right? No? Okay, kid, you need to go outside more often. Anyway, you'll know that a prism can make a rainbow because it splits light up into all the different colours that it's made of. Sunlight looks bright and white to us, but it's actually made up of layers and layers of colours, both visible and invisible, like a rainbow cake. Now. You can imagine light as a pinball that's zipping around the pinball machine. If it hits something, it can bounce off in a different direction. But because the different layers of light are all different weights, so to speak, some colours bounce more than other colours. So what happens with sunlight is, it hits the air surrounding Earth, and the light starts to scatter, because it's hitting all the teeny tiny air molecules. In terms of the rainbow colours, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, Yes, we're skipping indigo because it's kind of a neither here nor there colour. Anyway, the warm colours like red, orange and yellow are more chilled, heavy light waves. These colours don't bounce as much, which means they don't scatter much in the atmosphere, and hit the ground with no problem. But green, blue and violet, or the cold colours, are very energetic and light, like rabbits hopped up on sugar, so they bounce and scatter a lot in the air. Things are a certain colour because they reflect more of those colour light waves. This is why the sky looks blue, because it's reflecting more blue and violet light waves compared to red and orange. Welcome back. So it turns out the reason the sky is blue is quite simple. To use more technical terms, light is made up of many wavelengths, with certain wavelengths corresponding to different colours. Red is on the longer side of wavelengths, meaning its waves are slower, like a chilled out wavy line while blue has a short wavelength, making it look more like a frantic zigzag line. The longer wavelength red light kind of weaves through the air molecules in the sky, so it hits less things, meaning we don't see as much red in the sky. But shorter wavelength blue light bounces around all the air molecules a lot, 
so it scatters much more, hence we can see it more. This is called Rayleigh scattering, or why the sky is blue. Because blue light scatters more in the atmosphere than red, so we see blue skies. Now this also explains why sunrises and sunsets are red. When the sun is setting, sunlight has to travel through the atmosphere much longer than during daytime because it's coming in from the side of the sky at an angle. At this time, there's so much Rayleigh scattering that all the blue light is scattered away and we don't see it. So all we have left are red and orange lights, so voila, a beautiful pink-red sunset. This is also the same reason that you see red skies when there is a lot of air pollution, such as after wildfires. There's more particulates in the air, causing much more scattering of light than usual, resulting in only long wavelength red and orange light to pass through to reach our eyes. Side note, there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings of Two Towers where Legolas remarks that a red sun rises, blood has been spilt this night. It sounds like cheesy elvish magic, but turns out this is just good old science. He soon learned that the riders of Rohan had ambushed the Urukai, then burned all the corpses. This would have led to a lot of smoke, which would result in air pollution that would mean the sky and the sun look much redder than normal. Huzzah science! Making amazing movies like Lord of the Rings even more awesome. Also, if you haven't seen it, you should totally do a director's cut marathon. It is awesome. So, on a similar note, why is the sea blue? You might think that the sea is blue because the sky is blue and the sea just reflects it. But turns out the sea is blue for a similar reason to the sky. Similar to Rayleigh scattering, the sea scatters a lot of blue light, reflecting it back to our eyes. But red and orange light just get absorbed into the water, so we don't even see it. This is why underwater, everything looks a blue-green hue. And while we're talking about why things are blue, what about blue eyes? Seems weird that it's the only organ in our body that's properly blue. Because remember, veins are purply red, not actually blue. Well, blue eyes are due to a completely different kind of light scattering called the Tyndall effect. No, not the Tinder effect, Tyndall effect. This is again similar to Rayleigh scattering. The Tyndall effect is when you have particulates floating in liquids, scattering blue light much more than red light. A good home experiment you can do to reproduce this is adding a drop of milk to a glass of water, or mixing in a small amount of flour to water. If you shine light through this glass, it'll look a lovely pastel blue. The same thing happens in the irises of blue-eyed people. Because they like the brown pigment melanin that you find in skin and hair and brown-eyed people, the light scatters over the tiny protein suspended over their irises, creating a lovely blue hue. I find it fascinating that blue eyes are not because the eyes are pigmented blue, like with brown eyes, but because of light trickery. Anyway, that was a list of some interesting ways nature produces the color blue. We'll take a short break, and when we're back, we're going to go deeper into the history of blue and our relationship to the color, from rare precious dyes to how our brains perceive color depending on what languages we speak. Welcome back. So it turns out that out of all the colors, blue has one of the most fascinating history in terms of its relationship to us. Back in 1858, a scholar by the name of William Gladstone noticed something peculiar while studying ancient Greek literature. He couldn't help but notice that the Greeks didn't really ever seem to mention the color blue. Like, there was a lot of reds and yellows and browns and whites and blacks, but for example, they would describe the sea as wine dark while calling the sky copper colored. Note that copper turns a green blue color when it's exposed to air, much like what the Statue of Liberty looks like right now. 
Anyway, another scholar named Lazarus Geiger expanded on Gladstone's work and perused a variety of ancient literature from the Bible to Quran to Hindu poems to ancient Chinese stories and Norse tales. All of these literature had detailed descriptions of beautiful sceneries, but they all seemed to omit one detail that surely existed back then as it does now. Blue skies. Why though? Were ancient people just really colorblind and couldn't see blue? Well, for one thing, no, that's not how colorblindness works. You can listen to episode 17 to learn all about that and tetrachromacy. But secondly, it's entirely possible that back then, blue was such a hard color to reproduce that we kind of hated on it. Think about it. Red, yellow, black, and white dyes are pretty easy to make because they appear commonly in various dirts and rocks that can be ground down into powders. But blue? There was no easy way to make blue dyes in ancient times. So maybe that's why it wasn't emphasized and weren't in our lexicons back then. It's sort of telling that the first ancient civilization to properly use a separate word for blue were the ancient Egyptians, the one ancient culture that was reliably making a type of blue dye during that time period. There's a lot of really interesting research that suggests that every culture evolves color and the language for color in a very predictable fashion, with red, yellow, brown, and white being in the early stages of the language's development, with colors like blue coming much later. Anyway, in ancient times, blue was often the color associated with barbarians, promiscuity, and fools. So you can see how much love blue got back then. It wasn't really up until the medieval times that blue became a more accessible color, particularly to artists. Up until then, some cultures had figured out ways to produce blue, such as Egyptian blue, but these were still quite rare. By the 14th and 15th century, the mineral lapis lazuli was being imported more into Europe, and was successfully made into a rich blue dye called ultramarine. This let painters of the time paint some brilliant deep blues for skies and oceans. However, it wasn't cheap. You can imagine a dye made from grinding up precious stones imported all the way from Afghanistan would cost you a pretty penny to buy. Even the name Lapis Lazuli means beyond the sea. Talk about premium sounding. There's a story that the Dutch artist Vermeer nearly bankrupted himself just trying to get enough ultramarine dye to paint his paintings. Now there's a lovely art history fact that I love about ultramarine about a painting by Titian called Bacchus and Ariadne. I'll post a link to the picture for those who have never seen it, but it's one of my favorite classical paintings. It's a gobsmackingly beautiful painting of the Greek myth of Dionysus, the god of party and wine, and his to-be lover, Ariadne. It captures the feeling of shock and awe in the first moments of a beautiful connection. But the interesting part of the painting is just how strikingly blue the painting is, with the skies and the sea, and also Ariadne's cloak. You see, Titian used the hot new ultramarine for his blues. You can imagine just how expensive the painting would have been when so much of it is covered in the much-desired ultramarine dye. Which is why it's so cool to see Titian use that same ultramarine for Ariadne's cloak. It symbolizes just how precious Ariadne is to Dionysus in that moment, how precious and rare and priceless the feeling of love and connection can be. That's a little side story that I love. Back to the history of blue. So by this time, blue was becoming more commonplace in art, albeit very expensive. It most notably became the symbolic color of the Virgin Mary. You can also see it in paintings by many masters, such as Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring. Suddenly, blue was rising from the pits of being considered the color of barbarians to the color of the Holy Mother of Christ and royalty. But still, it was so expensive that regular people just couldn't access it easily. Over time, chemists and artists continued to work on making the color blue more accessible. 
This resulted in colours like cerulean, cobalt blue, and prussian blue. But it wasn't until the invention of indigo that blue really popped off. Indigo is a blue plant-based dye that had been widely used in India, Africa, and some other Asian countries for a long time, but it still hadn't been very common in Europe because it wasn't traded much. That is, until a chemist in Germany named Adolf von Weyer synthesized an artificial version of indigo in 1878. This made indigo much more widely available in Europe, and it was used to dye a tough fabric called denim. Around the same time, Levi Strauss and Jacob Davis started working on a design for a tough type of pants, and turned out denim was the perfect cloth for it. Thus, the modern riveted blue jeans was invented. Jeans spread rapidly over the coming century, until you could see blue jeans in almost every country in the world. Suddenly, one of the most popular types of pants were blue-coloured. So that's a brief summary of the fascinating history of blue. Isn't it weird to think that because it was hard to reproduce, we didn't even describe the colour with words in antiquity? Well, the funny thing is, even now we can see examples of the weird relationship between colour and words. We'll take a short break, then dive into the strange world of blue-green. Or as linguists like to call it, grew. Ugh, that sounds so disgusting, don't make me say it again. Welcome back. Alright, so let me tell you about a fascinating research that highlights just how powerful language can be. The Himba tribe of Namibia speak a language that doesn't distinguish between blue and green. This is not that uncommon, and we'll talk about it in just a little bit. Anyway, they don't have separate words for the two colours. So researchers wanted to test a hypothesis that might be relevant to our stories of the ancient Greeks in describing their skies and seas as wine or copper coloured. If you don't have the right word for the colour, does it affect how you physically see that colour? To test this hypothesis, they showed the people of the Himba tribe a picture of a circle made up of 12 squares. 11 of the squares were green, while one of them were obviously blue, for, for us at least. They asked the Himba tribe to point out the square that was the odd one out. I'll link an example of the colour circle in the show notes so you can try for yourself. Now, to us English speakers, it's a piece of cake picking out the obviously sky blue square from the circle of forest green squares. But for people of the Himba tribe, they really struggled to find the odd square. They would sometimes get the right answer, but only after a long time of careful study and a lot of guessing. So it turns out, if you don't have the word for blue, and you call both blue and green green, then your brain might not physically be able to distinguish the difference. Isn't that wild? You'd think that colour is a natural property of light, but because we experience the world through how our brain interprets sensory information, two different human beings can look at the same thing and have a completely different experience. It just goes to show you that you can't really trust what you see and hear, let alone what you read on the internet. <laughs> now, fascinatingly, there was a second component of the study of the Himba tribe that's even more interesting. See, even though they don't have a word distinguishing blue from green, turns out they have many words for green compared to English. So the researchers made another circle of coloured squares, but this time, the odd one out was only a slightly different shade of green to the other ones. I'll post this one in the show notes too. Now, most English speakers couldn't tell the odd square, just like how the Himba tribe could not tell the blue square from the green ones. But if you show someone from the Himba tribe the circle of supposedly all green squares, they could pretty easily pick out the different shaded green square, because they had a word for them. Weird. They found similar findings in cultures that have more words for a single colour than English, such as Russian, where there's many more words for blue, 
and Korean, where we have a separate word for yellow green and deeper greens. Like I said before, lots of languages describe color differently. And one of the strangest, consistent differences to English is that many cultures don't distinguish blue and green specifically. Take, for example, the Korean language. Now, in Korean, we do have different words for blue and green. Blue is paransek, green is choroksek. But then we also have an adjective called puruda, which kind of means bluish or blue. Strangely, though, we'll use this term to describe a lusciously green field like purun ondok, or the green light on traffic signs saying paranbul, which are both obviously very green. We'll also use this term to describe the blue sky and ocean. Very versatile term. Similarly, the adjective we use for blue jeans, tongbaji, and green grapes, tongpodo, are the same, tong. Korean is only one of many examples throughout the world, particularly Asia, Africa, and the Americas, where blue and green aren't really distinguished. So now that you know about the Himba tribe and all the languages that don't really differentiate between blue and green, let me ask you this. At the start of this episode, we talked about how ancient civilizations didn't really mention blue, and how it might be related to the lack of there being enough blue things around to describe other than the sky and the ocean, because blue dyes were so hard to make. But now, we know from the Himba tribe that if you don't have a word for blue, you might not be able to physically see the color. Instead, you call it the next closest thing, like green or purple. So what do you think ancient people saw when they looked into the bright blue sky, or the deep blue ocean? Do you think they saw exactly what we see, except they didn't have a word to describe it? Or, so they just called it something different, like copper-colored? Or, do you think they couldn't even see the blue, so to them, the sky physically looked green or purple? There's a very cool anecdote that gives us an insight into imagining what ancient Greek people might have seen when they looked up into the sky. A color researcher named Guy Deutscher decided to raise his daughter in a way to never describe the color of the sky to her. I don't know if that counts as child abuse, but the result of it was fascinating. One day, Deutscher casually asked his daughter to look at the sky, and asked her what the color of the sky was. His daughter had no idea. She first said the sky was colorless, then said it was white, and then eventually she said it was blue. But it's weird that it wasn't the first thing to come to her mind, especially since she knew what the color blue looked like. So there you go. Turns out language really does alter our way of experiencing the world. This is called linguistic relativity, and it's still quite a new area of research that we're understanding more and more in the last 30 to 40 years. I absolutely love talking about the color blue and all the weird historical and neuroscientific facts around it, because it really makes us think twice about how we perceive color, and how other people experience the world compared to us. For example, we have no real way to tell if other people see the same color as us when we're looking at the sky. For example, a lot of colorblind people will say that they never knew that they weren't seeing as many colors as other people until it was pointed out. It's also related to that famous interview question, how would you describe the color red to a blind person? These are all experiences that are intuitive to us, but might not necessarily be shared with other people. In philosophy, they call this the problem of other minds, because we're not mind readers, so we can't know how other people perceive the world. Hell, we can't even know if they have minds of their own, and not a robot program to respond to the world in a very similar way to you. Just to trick you and make you feel stupid like in The Truman Show. But that's why it's so important to be open to learning and listening to other people to get a broader perspective of the world. 
Because if you live your whole life seeing the world through one lens without even bothering to listen to how other people live their world, say, oh for example, being a wealthy straight white male, then you couldn't even begin to understand how others experience the world. The joys, the sorrows, the pain, and the injustices people around you experience. And that's why it's important to read books, watch movies, travel broadly, listen to people's stories, and to really connect with others. Because what a boring life it would be to think that there's only one way to experience the world. Alright, I think there's plenty to talk about just about the colour blue, huh? So let's talk about the colour red instead! No, I'm just kidding, we're done for today. So what did we learn today? We learned that the sky is blue because of Rayleigh scattering, where blue light scatters more than red light, unless the sun is setting or there's a lot of smoke from the burnt corpses of Urukai. We learned that people with blue eyes don't have special blue pigments in their eyes, but light scatters in a specific way through their iris to produce the blue hue. We learned that blue has been an elusive colour when it comes to art, because it was so hard to make a cheap blue dye until only 5 to 600 years ago. Think about that the next time you paint something in your house blue. We learned that ancient people didn't even have a word for blue, and this seems to be a consistent finding throughout the world. We learned that even now, some cultures don't distinguish blue from green, and this can physically alter the way people perceive colour, not being able to pick out a blue square amongst green squares. We learned that this is a great example of how everyone experiences the world differently, so we should actively try to learn about different perspectives and lenses that people see the world through, so that we can be better people with more interesting lives. Okay, so for today's Two Minutes Explain, we have a listener suggestion from Kelly. Kelly asks, how did dinosaurs turn into crude oil? Thank you for the suggestion, Kelly. Just a quick reminder that I love getting suggestions and feedback from you all, so don't hesitate to send in emails or comment on Facebook or Twitter. Anyway, let's talk about oil. So, most of us learned when we were children that petrol comes from the dead bodies of dinosaurs that have been underground for millions of years. Turns out this is kind of true, but not 100% correct. In reality, petrol does come from ancient dead animals, just not dinosaurs. They actually come from the dead bodies of teeny tiny animals called zooplankton and also algae. That's right, you can't say that your car runs on premium T-Rex anymore. So how on earth did we get thick, black, burnable oil from tiny cells floating in the ocean? What happened was around 300 million years ago, these teeny tiny organisms would have been living their simple life, then eventually, like everything in the world, including us someday, died. When they died, they sank to the bottom of the sea or lake or whatever body of water they lived in. But now, here's the crucial part. Normally when plants and animals die, they get decomposed by bacteria. The most common process is through something called aerobic decomposition, where bacteria use oxygen to efficiently eat your corpse. This ends up leaving less waste product. But in the case of these plankton, they ended up in places with very little oxygen, like in a pool of water with no oxygen in it, or trapped under layers and layers of sand and rock. Here, different types of bacteria use another process called anaerobic decomposition that doesn't use oxygen. It's much dirtier though, so instead of breaking apart the organic matter fully, it leaves a lot of organic waste. Then, over millions of years, more and more layers of rock would cover up the fossilized remains of the dead plankton. We're talking like kilometers of rock. Now imagine being trapped under tons of rock. It's not a pretty sight. You'd not only end up a flat pancake because of the pressure, but it's also a lot of insulation like layers of blankets, so you end up really, really hot. 
All the pressure and heat slowly convert the organic matter in the plankton bodies, that is, all the carbon and hydrogen and whatnot, into something we call kerogen. This waxy substance ends up being transformed into all sorts of hydrocarbons like octane, butane, and propane. You've probably heard of these compounds, they're all different kinds of fuel, that burn really well to give off a lot of energy. All of these hydrocarbons are mixed together in a black sludge that we call crude oil, or petroleum. There we go. Turns out all we needed to create a fuel source that fueled the 20th century was a buttload of dead plankton, insane amounts of pressure and heat, and 300 million years. Which is a great lesson in life. If you ever feel down and about that you're under a lot of pressure and heat and you're just not coping, just remember, pressure and heat can turn any corpse into a fuel source given enough time. Hmm. That's much less eloquent and inspiring than the diamond analogy. Anywho, that's where crude oil comes from. We just need to drill down really deep to reach the reservoir of crude oil deep in the ground, distill it to separate out all the hydrocarbons, then use them for all sorts of purposes like fueling cars and planes, making plastics or paraffin wax, and very efficiently killing planet Earth. What? Yeah, don't even try acting surprised. <laughs> but that's a story for another day. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Explain This. I hope you've learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter 